Hello, everybody, and welcome today's, to today's webinar, Evaluating Claims for Permanency Exposure in New York. Uh, my name is Tim Kane. I'm a senior associate here at Lois LLC. I'm joined by Tashia Rasool, a partner here at Lois LLC. And uh, we're just going to go ahead and dive right into the webinar. If you have any questions, feel free to ask us, and we will answer them uh, at the end of the presentation. So, again, today's topic is permanent impairment Schedule loss use and loss wage and capacity in uh, New York compensation. All right, so we're going to start off with the easier of the two, the SLU, schedule loss of use. So this applies to the body parts such as the fingers, the toes, the hands, arms, foot, leg, and even the eyes. Now, schedule loss of use is easy. There's a table with the uh, percentage, the SLU percentage, and it correlates to a number of weeks, and that's how you determine the, um, the exposure. So the way it's calculated is a temporary total disability rate, which is two-thirds of the average weekly wage, multiplied by the number of weeks that correlates with the percentage. Right, and the number, the percentage is informed by the claimant C4.3 and the IME's opinion on percent of loss of use for that particular extremity whether you make an agreement on that number or it has to be litigated, once you have that number, basically just plug it into the table and you have your uh, number of weeks of benefits. Right. Yes. Okay, so how is the SLU really determined? It's, um, so it's outlined in the impairment guidelines and it's essentially just determining what the claimant's, uh, the range of motion of the body part is and um, some other factors such as, you know, whether, a whether there's a surgery, there's any residual defects, um, and this is all done by a doctor. So it requires an examination and following the impairment guidelines for the particular body part. Um, you'll see the, the slide there, just, those are just like snapshots from the impairment guidelines showing um, the range of motion calculations and the SLU calculations, I'm sorry, for the knee. Right. And, well, one of the things that's used to measure the range of motion, which is always, almost always a hotly contested issue in depositions, is whether there was the use of a goniometer, um, which is this uh, little gadget that's used to measure range of motion. Some doctors use them, some doctors don't, so it's something we always want to inquire. Indeed. Um, There's also a number of special considerations, as you alluded to, you know, whether there was a, a, a meniscal tear, for example, for a knee, or uh, you know different types of surgeries that were performed could be worth uh, a certain set number of points, and then you tack on the range of motion findings. Again, this is all stuff that uh, can be litigated. Uh, certainly, the IME usually finds a, a better range of motion than yes. the famous doctor does, though. And uh, so the SLU is uh, documented by the claimant's doctor in this form called a C-4.3. And if it's an IME doctor, he or she can just include it in the regular IME for his regular IME report. That's right. So here's where it's on the second page where they'll include the body part and the SLU percentage, and they usually attach a narrative report detailing the reason why they came up with a certain percentage. Right, and it could be more than one site. As you can see, there are multiple fields available. So just to recap, calculating SLU exposure, it's 66% times the average weekly wage, which is the temporary total disability rate, uh, subject to any maximum in New York, the maximum sure. rate, multiplied by the SLU percentage, uh, that's the number of weeks, 
and that's your exposure. And just keep in mind, though, that this is just the exposure for the indemnity um, portion of the, the claim. There will be additional for medicals. If you're looking to settle the claim, right, if you're using a slew analysis to price out the claim for full and final settlement, you would want to tack on money for full and final. There are people who take their schedule and go back to work at the same job, and you may not want to settle that claim on a full and final basis, in which case you just pay out the schedule, and that's basically it. It kind of depends on how the claimant looks to pursue the claim and whether full and final settlement is appropriate. Right. Furthermore, there might be multiple schedulable sites, so they are kind of stacked up. They're cumulative. Yes. And then subject to the indemnity credit, which if any money was paid out, that would be subtracted out, which isn't yes. included in our equation here. Mm -hmm. But that's always something to keep in mind. And then there's also another thing that we have to keep in mind. It's the protracted healing period. So the legislator decided that it was a good idea to... I guess, cap the number of weeks that's considered a normal healing period for a particular injury. So what you're seeing on your screen right now is, for example, if it's an injury to the arm, the normal healing period is 32 weeks. So if a claimant is deemed to be at a temporary total disability for more than 32 weeks, he would be entitled to additional SLU money in the end. Right. So, for example, if he, so, for the arm, it's 32 weeks, a normal healing period. If he were found to be at a total disability for 40 weeks, he'd be entitled to an additional eight weeks of compensation. Right, eight weeks of protracted healing period awards. Practically speaking, what we want to do is try and get an IME sooner than however many number of weeks uh, in the case of an arm, sooner than 32 weeks deep into the claim, uh, if the IME presumably finds partial, that, that's a way of reducing the rate and hopefully avoiding a, a PHP award. Certainly you don't want to yes. be in a position where the person gets the total rate for uh, months and months and months because that can really increase their schedule loss use award. Oh, yes, and, you know, exposure could certainly skyrocket because before you know it, they're at a temporary total disability for a year. Right. And, it and that has can happened. Be, yes. <laughs> that can be so, thousands of extra dollars. To be avoided. So that's schedule loss of use. Um, the other type of uh, permanent injury, that, or, or um, the other situation you would see is the loss of wage earning capacity. This is when someone is classified with a permanent partial disability or possibly a permanent total disability. Um, we're going to get a little deeper into how this all gets calculated, but basically, once a degree of LWEC has been determined, um, whether by agreement or by the, the administrative law judge, that's going to translate to a, a set number of weeks of benefits for any disability, any partial disability, from 99% on down. And that really helps you in terms of, again, if you're trying to price out a claim for a full and final settlement, if someone has been deemed to have a 50% LWEC, we can see exactly how much in future indemnity that's going to be worth, try and figure out the additional medical cost, and um, it should be a little easier to price out the claim for that purpose. Right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the way this works, first thing that would happen is that one doctor or the other would find that the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. Correct. And then there are three factors that are taken into consideration after there's been a finding of MMI. The first is the medical impairment, which is made, the determination is made by a doctor and the functional ability of the claimant as well as the vocational ability of the claimant. And then the judge makes a decision on LWEC. Right. Unless the parties come to an agreement, which is a thing also. Right. So the first piece of that is impairment ratings, permanent medical impairment. Uh, basically, both doctors are going to have to give 
uh, opinions based on the permanency guidelines. Uh, they decide a, a class and a severity ranking, and this is all spelled out fairly clearly in the permanency guidelines. Um, what you're seeing on screen now is an example of one of the tables. Um, this is just one of them, but it kind of gives you an idea of what you're dealing with when it comes to determining someone's class and severity ranking, and from our perspective, you know, potential points for cross-examination uh, when you're talking to the doctors about which table they selected and whether or not that's an appropriate uh, uh, severity ranking in class for that particular claimant. Right. And um, these tables are subject to um, a lot of different interpretations, which we'll talk about in a little while, but it's the, it's, it's, it's the guidance um, for determination of medical impairments. It's, what, it's what's required by the judges in order to determine that there's been an opinion with regards to medical impairment. They must refer to the tables, right. the doctors. And you would think, hopefully, the broad strokes will match up, you know, whether someone has had surgery or not could place them in a different table. So you'd think that most doctors would land on the same table for a particular site, but even within that, there's a lot of different factors that can, uh, a doctor can, can allege that would change the severity ranking. Um, and in fact, there's additional tables that can be referred to. You see some reference here uh, to those additional tables. Sometimes you have to skip down for, um, to the radiculopathy tables. That, you know, they cover issues such as whether or not there's imaging, whether or not there's um, you know loss of strength, loss of sensation, things like that. There's a you know one one after another. They're all listed out, and these are again things that you can look at when you're cross-examining a doctor to ask them whether these things were tested for and whether or not they're documented in their report. Right. And especially if a table is not supposed to be used, sometimes the doctors use that. And so it's a good opportunity to say, hey, doctor, why are you even using this table? How does it even apply to this particular case? Right. And more than once, doctors have gotten on you know, deposition testified that they, you know, they don't have their notes in front of them, they don't know how they got there, and it's a good way to discredit them for the judge. Yes. Um, if that's your goal. Mm -hmm. Now this is, so the ELWIC, um, I'm sorry, the medical impairment finding is also documented on the C-4.3 by the claimant's doctor, and for the IME doctor, they're just including it in their regular IME report. And um, it just, you have to list the body part, it says, that what you're seeing on the screen, the impairment table, so those are the tables we were just talking about, and the severity ranking, those are the letters and numbers uh, that come from the table. Right, so whether it's a schedule loss use or a classification, the claimant's doctor uses C4.3, and even if they want to allege that the claimant has not reached MMI, they still need to use a form C4.3 if the judge orders it. Correct, so. yes, or they could be precluded from producing a permanency opinion if exactly. they don't do that, yes. Exactly, so it's a, a nice little technicality that we can take advantage of sometimes mm -hmm. uh, if the claimant's doctor doesn't file the right form. The next piece of a classification evaluation, an LWEC evaluation, is functionability. That's also in the C4.3. Right, so this, um, so this has a couple of different components also. So the C4.3 is one of them where the doctor can indicate what he believes the claimant's functional abilities are. Right. And they're very basic things like lifting, standing, sitting, walking, and carrying. And this is based on the doctor's treatment of the claimant and their examination at the, um, at the time they're making a permanent uh, impairment decision. Now the other way is the claimant's testimony, right? He can go into court and testify what he's able to do and not able to do. 
And so since there are these two components, we always try to attack the credibility of what the doctor is saying and the claimant's doing, what the claimant is testifying to. Right. Um, there's also the VDF-1 form that's used, right, where the claimant can indicate what he's able to do or not able to do. Right. They discuss what they've done in the past and, you know, for example, if a doctor <coughs> indicates that someone can't uh, sit or stand for a particular period of time and you ask them, you know, what do you, how do you spend your time and they say, oh, I, I sit there watching TV for four or five hours a day, you know they can sit in a chair for four to five hours. That's a, a basic example, but that's the kind of thing we're getting at where you kind of try and play them against each other and to the best extent possible figure out, figure out what this person is really capable of. Um, and certainly anything that's on the C4.3 is fair game when you cross-examine the doctor, a lot of times they don't remember what they wrote. Sometimes the stuff they put on there isn't really relevant. If someone has a, a back injury and the doctor says they can't handle, um, you know, hot or cold, you might ask them, you know, doctor, what does that have to do with the cause-related injury here? So it's a good opportunity to, to discredit them. And another way to do that would be to bring in surveillance, surveillance, video surveillance. If the doctor says the person can't walk and you have video of them walking down the street, that might be a good opportunity to show the judge that uh, something is a little off here. Correct, yes. And, you know, the claimant could be caught doing like several different activities which are contradictory to both his own doctor's records and the IME doctor's records. Or the IME doctor is saying something totally different from his doctor's based on what the claimant is telling him. So one way to contradict this is to have this video evidence and confront him with it. Um, at the time of trial, or you can also have the doctors review it and make a determination of how they're able to drive, whereas in their report it's indicated that they're not able to drive. Right. Um, and if you're in a position to cross-examine the claimant on attachment to the labor market, that might also be a good opportunity to gather up some evidence to sort of use against them in the LWEC uh, context if they were applying for jobs that would require certain physical capabilities. You might ask them, you know, two months later at the LWAC trial, um, you have applied for these types of jobs, and now you're saying that you can't do X, Y, Z. Uh, again, just a good opportunity to try and get out the truth and, and maybe discredit them a little bit in the eyes of the judge. Right. And now we have more opportunities to do that because most of the judges are setting um, attachment, the, trials. attachment trials shortly before the LWAC trials under the new um, laws regarding the permanence. Per, uh, LWEC and permanent impairment. Right, right. So um, if someone's applying for computer science jobs, right, right, you might want to mention that to the judge at the LWEC trial. Of course, yes. Presumably it's the same referee, but that's the idea. Um, another useful tool, if you can bring it into evidence, is a functional capacity evaluation. Uh, a lot of times an IME will indicate that the claimant would benefit from a functional capacity evaluation. Rarely will the claimant's own doctor concede that and even if they do, the claimant's attorney probably will um, oppose them attending a functional capacity evaluation. But if you can get a judge to direct it, then it might be a, a good way to get a, a, a closer idea of what the claimant's actually capable of than what they're willing to concede themselves under cross-examination. Right. And the way the carrier can get one of these FCEs is um, have the IME say that it's necessary and how this can be done is when you're scheduling the IME one of the questions should be doctor would a functional capacity evaluation assist in your opinion in you know making a determination in medical impairments um, hopefully the IME doctor is going to say yes 
and you can use that as a tool to file an RFA2 request in board direction for the claimant to cooperate. Once in a while, very rare, the claimant's own doctor would <laughs> say that an FCE is um, request, uh, like recommended. Right. Even if you were to obtain an IME and you did not ask the IME doctor that, you can certainly get it through an addendum, but then there are just more issues that come with that, you know, asking him after the fact. Sure. So we'd, re we'd recommend asking the IME doctor when you're actually requesting the IME. And the next piece of the LWEC evaluation is the, the claimant's vocational history. This is what you were mentioning earlier with the VDF-1. Um, you know, once permanent medical impairment has been determined, once, you know, presumably the judge has a pretty good idea of the percentage of permanent medical impairment, um, the vocational factors are an opportunity to either increase or potentially decrease that percentage. Um, certainly, um, claimant's counsel is looking to increase, uh, for example, uh, a straight 50% moderate uh, permanent medical impairment. You know, they're looking for um, 10, 15, 20 points to be tacked on if they can get it, uh, as many as possible, really, based on the claimant's vocational history. And these are questions about the claimant's prior training, uh, other jobs they've had, uh, whether they went to college, whether they were in the, the military, whether they ever had any kind of apprenticeship, um, basically whether they have any transferable skills. Right. Um, so the reason, next one. Mm. So the reason we have um, LOL there is because sometimes it's kind of a joke, the things that the claimants would come into court and testify about, and if we have, we don't have contradictory evidence you know, value is given to it and the judge makes the decision based on that. So you'll have situations where claimants come in and they testify that they don't know how to read or write, whereas throughout the course of the claim they have done several things to show that they can actually read and write. For example, uh, do job searches if you're able to get that information through an attachment trial. Um, one thing you can do also to contest uh, their claim that they don't have any vocational skills that they can, you know, use with their permanent impairment to like get back into the job market is a labor market survey and the testimony of the consultant. So this would, so getting a report um, would help us to uh, make a determination of the kind of work that's out there, that fits the criteria that the claimant fits, and we'll also need to have testimony regarding how the determination was made and how it can be applied to the claimant. Right, so if this is something that you're interested in doing, it's recommended that you do that around the same time that the case is set for... Um, the LWEC trial. LWEC trial. Yes. Um, another piece of information you can attempt to bring in is any kind of uh, resume or personnel file, any kind of diploma. If the person got um, hurt at work, then presumably that employer can provide certain information, uh, you know, the application materials, anything that's in the personnel file, um, anything that that person was... Uh, able to do as part of that job or claim to be able to do, presumably they would, you know, aside from their physical impairment, they would still be able to, you know, if they speak multiple languages, that kind of thing. Um, it's the kind of thing that you would want to bring in at that point. Similarly, you can uh, ask for their license to be produced um, and see whether there are any endorsements for uh, adventuring. <laughs> yes, or hobbies right. that they're engaging in that right. they claim that they're not able to do, like bow hunting and fishing. Right, that right. requires the use of the arm. Right. Right. Sometimes they'll tell the IME that they still 
go jogging or that they do gardening, things like that. This is the kind of thing that you definitely want to tell the judge. Uh, yes. Bring that out during uh, the LWEC proceeding. So it definitely requires a comprehensive review of the entire file. Every bits and pieces of information that you can put together, it's worthwhile doing so in confronting the claims of the trial. Okay, so as a review, we first, one doctor needs to uh, allege that the doctor has reached maximum medical improvement, or if the claim is old enough, the judge just might direct the parties to ask the doctors to get a report like that. Um, and if, you know, once both doctors have um, commented on MMI, uh, presumably they'll give impairment ratings uh, and, and comments on functional ability, then the claim will testify about vocational factors and you come out with a, uh, an overall LWEC. So this is just um, a blurb from a New York Appellate Division case, Baxit, which uh, says that all three factors must be taken into consideration when making an LWEC determination. Um, so just to bring it all in full circle, how do we get to the point of LWEC? As Tim just mentioned, there's um, the MMI determination, and if both sides, the doctors, found the MMI, then they have to produce permanency ratings. Then it's set for a trial where the functional and vocational capacities are explored, and the judge makes a decision. Or it can go along the more litigious route where MMI first has to be litigated, then the judge makes a finding of MMI or not. Right. If the judge makes a finding of MMI, then she directs the parties to go get their impairment um, rankings. Then if the doctors don't agree, then you litigate that also through depositions. And then we have the LWIC trial where testimony is taken and all of our evidence is produced. Right, so on the one end of the spectrum, the parties could just agree to an LWIC. On the other end of the spectrum, you're litigating basically every step of the process. Right. Um, so, and it, you know, if, if someone's got an upcoming surgery or something, probably they wouldn't be found to be at MMI. But if the doctors agree that there's uh, maximum medical improvement, then you kind of dive into the entire LWEC analysis. Um, so this is a, a convenient uh, description or a, what's uh, um, what I'm looking for here, equation how yes. to get to uh, the exposure. <laughs> So the, uh, the, the, the rate is determined by medical impairment. Uh, the number of cap weeks, the, 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 which was the LWEC um, chart that, that we showed it earlier in the presentation, uh, the number of weeks that translate to the percentage of loss of wage earning capacity, multiply those together, and you have a pretty good idea of what your exposure you're looking at for uh, future uh, indemnity Indemnity. benefits. And then you have to try to determine the cost of medical care for that particular claimant, which could be different from one claimant to another. Um, There's no set formula, but we just take several different, you know, things into consideration, like the history of the treatment, the current status of the claimant, whether there is a big surgery pending that's, you know, even authorized by the IME, right? Or, um, you know, any other factors, prescription drugs, and so forth, that you want to take into consideration. So it really varies. Um, one of the things is if the claimant hasn't treated in like two years, then we know the medical exposure is not going to be very high, but there's no set formula. It's just right. based on experience. And the <laughs> prescription drugs, that's a good point. That can certainly drive up the cost yes. of uh, future medical care. We're seeing that a lot these days. Mm -hmm. um, if you happen to have a uh, MSA uh, from a third-party MSA vendor, um, that, you know, that can certainly give you some pretty good guidance as to what your future medical costs are going to be. If you're looking to settle a claim, usually if you have a number from an MSA, um, usually the parties can agree that that's a, a safe number for, for future medical care. 
So this is an example of, of a mild classification uh, currently at the minimum of a 150 per week multiplied by 225 weeks. Um, prior to May 1st, 2013, the minimum was only $100 per week, so it was a little bit less. Um, but most of the claims we see these days, you know, the, the date of accident is subsequent to May 1st, 2013, and so the, the minimum will be 150 per week, regardless right. of the average weekly wage. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, well, there are some situations where it could be even less, but that's the subject for another webinar. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it'll be 150. Okay. So some practical advice when evaluating uh, exposures and claims. There, so we talked a lot about the medical impairment tables in the impairment guidelines. And, you know, it's what does this mean? Can we just talk simple terms, you know, mild, moderate, marked? No, we have to reference tables. Mm. So what we recommend doing is doing the crosswalk for these tables to see where exactly the medical impairment falls. And the reason is, you know, something that's really a mild impairment where the claimant just had a sprain with no surgery or anything like that, our adversaries are saying that's like a marked or a total disability, right? So it's good to use the, the medical impairment severity crosswalk, which is on pages 120 and 121 of the impairment guidelines. And it lays out the body part. It lays out the table um, from which the medical impairment comes, which is what we talked about earlier, and the actual severity ranking. And you just do the crosswalk to determine whether it's in the mild range, moderate range, or marked range. And that also helps with the, eva uh, the exposure evaluation. Right. And just bear in mind, this is strictly for <laughs> permanent medical impairment. This doesn't take into account the vocational factors that can be attacked on, but this gives you some idea of where you might land in terms of percentage of permanent medical impairment, bearing in mind that each judge still has their own interpretation yes. of what these things mean. Um, but usually, um, you know, you should be within a similar range, um, not too far off from each other in terms of uh, how you interpret. Uh, for example, if two doctors say the same thing, you shouldn't be too far apart. Correct, right. yes. Hopefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> Although we've seen situations where the doctors found similar things and one believes it's a total disability and the other believes it's like not mild. even a mild. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, that's where advocacy comes in, I suppose. Right. Um, another thing to keep in mind when someone is classified with a permanent partial disability is the ATF deposit. Um, carriers uh, are required to make ATF deposits. Um, this is, um, you know, something that will be directed in the NOD when the claimant is classified. It'll just be a, a general direction, um, but the ATF deposit won't become due for very likely many, many more months, you know, six, seven, eight months after that. Uh, traditionally, what happens is there will be a, um, a computation of the, uh, the amount of money that needs to be deposited, and then there'll be a supplemental NOD once that actuarial computation is in the file. Uh, the supplemental NOD will give the precise amount and, and date that the deposit is due. So if the parties are interested in settling a claim, it's in your best interest to do that as soon as possible after classification. Otherwise, you know, once the ATF deposit becomes due, um, a carrier certainly isn't going to want to settle indemnity. There would be no point. But they are still responsible for medical, so it becomes kind of a, a bifurcated thing if the claimant's looking to settle. Right. And also, so for the ATF deposits, even though... Um, the ATF wasn't created until well into the 
a discovery of workers' compensation, it is permissibly retroactive, meaning the claims with the date of loss prior to the creation of the ATF, um, the carriers still have to make the deposit into the ATF. So it's something where if you have any questions about what to do and when and who might be um, liable to make an ATF deposit, you can always email uh, any of us here and uh, we'll help you out with that. And I think that more or less covers the subject of exposure and permanency. If you have any questions, feel free to let us know uh, either now or by email and we'll be happy to help you. Um, let's take a look here. Do we have anything? Checking. <laughs> Bear with us for a We're second here. Some. Yeah. I think we're just overloaded with questions. Either that or we, we covered everything. It's one or the other. You know what? The question's not working right now. Hmm. Um, all right, um, the, so we're having a little bit of technical difficulty here right now, but if you did type in a question, we're not able to see it, if you can email us the question and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. And even if you have something that's not related to a topic that we discussed here today, feel free to send us an email and um, we'll give you your, our two cents about it. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in and for watching us. Thanks for joining everybody. Have a great Thanksgiving. <laughs>